A small horde of ghouls descended upon the town of Red Road, where the populace has mustered a meager defense designed to buy them time to evacuate across the bridge. Caught in the middle is the exhausted adventuring party, down one member, with another potentially infected with Dara Ghoul fever. As the town archers hold the main ghoul force at bay, fast, heavily armored undead dart around to flank the people of Red Road and block their escape. Running a big battle using the warfare rules from MCDM's Strongholds and Followers. This is Anatomy of a Campaign. As an RPG addict, I've owned hundreds of different games. Yes, it's a sickness, but I can say with some confidence that one of the most elusive system solutions is a game which handles the one-character-one-player game and also connects it to warfare rules. Warfare, if it's included in RPG, is often an abstracted minigame. Usually, it echoes the game system's general rules and tries to find a way to represent the PC's impact on the larger battle. It's hard to pin down why this really seems to work in a satisfying way. As I stated in the last podcast, my point of view is that RPGs work best when they help the players replicate the feeling of the media that inspired the game. A horror sci-fi game? Best figure out how to make that scene in Aliens where the motion detector says the aliens are already in the room. Michael Bay, the RPG? You'll need a mechanic to have your PC not look back as something blows up behind them. Scenes of massive battles in movies lean heavily on the POV of certain characters with the larger battle as a backdrop. The Battle of Helm's Deep in the Two Towers intercuts from Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli while showing us waves of orcs, elves, and men dying, loosing arrows, fighting. It's chaotic, but gives us the sense of being inside the battle. Yes, there are wide shots illustrating the scope of things, but the essence of the sequence is rooted within the individual characters. There's a lot of death and violence, but it's not until Haldir, the leader of the elves, dies that we care because Aragorn cares. Where many battlefield rules fall down is connecting the PCs to the battle. Either the core rules set aside certain character types or abilities for this, like you need a special feat to really lead folks in battle, or it makes that connection so ubiquitous that the connection feels generic. Neither works because no player is going to waste character design resources on an ability that works once in a blue moon and no one believes the party's backstabbing thief is really making a huge difference in the larger battle. Additionally, warfare rules need to find a sweet spot of complexity. Too much and suddenly we're playing a board game. Too little and it feels like a series of simple roles with no real input from the players. The warfare rules in Strongholds and Followers are solid. We've used them just the once, but the bottom line takeaway is that everyone took part and the rule set let us narrate a compelling battle scene. The approach the rules take regarding PC integration is unique in that it doesn't. It explicitly admits that individuals are not important, so it places units under control of the players, but those units are not then amended based on the characters as if they were directly leading them. Furthermore, these rules indicate that your PCs should be having a separate fight while this is all going on. Like Luke and Darth Vader fighting in the Emperor's throne room in Return of the Jedi while poor Admiral Akbar deals with the huge space battle around the fully functional Death Star. It was a trap, sir. Rest in peace, old friend. For our scenario, we had three different ghoul units. 
There was an archery unit representing ghoul bone crossbowmen, a large standard infantry unit of ghouls, and a smaller elite infantry unit. They were swarming into the town from the north. Not that this matters for the system. Defending in the south were five town units, all very small. We had archers, standard infantry, veterans with light equipment, representing some old-timers who had some fight left in them, cavalry, and on the fly, a pack of demons. I expected the ghouls to win, though winning for the townspeople was surviving long enough to get across the bridge. In the end, the battle turned into a rout, though not the one I intended. Okay, quick summary of the rules. Warfare is conducted by units. The units are categorized by ancestry, type, equipment, experience, and size. Saying that out loud, it sounds like a lot. It's really not. It's just a small handful of factors. Each of these elements is looked up on a chart, with each contributing to the unit's combat statistic. This is a wonderful and fun system to build unique units quickly. Having never done it before, I constructed the battle for both sides in less than an hour. Size is an important stat to mention because it represents the number of essentially hit points the unit has. It's represented by a dice, usually something between a d4 and a d12, which is placed on its highest number and is then decremented when it takes damage. More of the same units does not actually create new units, but increases the size of the dice being used. So if more human, veteran, heavy-equipped cavalry shows up, your size D4 unit becomes a size D6 unit. Everything else remains the same. Units have special traits derived from those charts. These are fairly simple, and they add flair intended to bring the armies to life. Having an army of elves is therefore different than having an army of men. I would say it's different enough to make it interesting, but not so noodly that it's like playing something wildly different. There's no movement involved with the units. They are presumed to be on the field of battle and to be run well. The field is an abstraction. Rather, there is an order of battle which indicates which unit can attack other units depending on what's on the field. For example, infantry cannot get to enemy archers while there is enemy infantry on the field. Unit actions are streamlined and center around attacking other units. It boils down to an attack roll and a damage roll, called a power roll, and success decrements the unit by one, two for certain special circumstances. Morale is a big deal. Failing a morale roll is the same as suffering an injury or failing a power roll, or having your enemy succeed on a power roll. You get the idea. When a unit is down by half their size, they make morale rolls whenever they're damaged. Actions are taken at the end of the controlling player's turn in the normal combat. In our game, we had the party battling a group of ghoul skirmishers. So Constantine would cast Hail of Thorns, pelt the skirmishers with crossbow bolts, and then when he's finished, Mike, playing Constantine, would give orders to the veteran light infantry to attack the ghoul infantry. It's not Constantine leading the veterans, it's just Mike controlling that unit. Okay, that's the overview, so what worked? It was really easy to pick up. We played over roll 20, so it was a bit harder, but after a few rounds, everyone was doing well with it, and I even stopped forgetting to ask for actions. More on that later. The system is just a framework, though it's easy to overlay interesting description. I did my level best to describe what was happening with the battle based on the dice rolls and units involved. My point is that while it's an abstract system, it did not feel abstract at the table. 
It scaled down no problem. In our case, this was not a battle of hundreds and thousands, but rather dozens versus hundreds. It made total sense to think of the size dice as relative rather than absolute. The townsfolk units ranged from a D2 with two units at a D4 and maybe one at a D6, so on the smaller end. By comparison, the ghouls were using D6s and D8s. I could use that array to represent a small fight, as I did, or with thousands on each side. I actually came to think of the size dice as a control dial for how long the fight will take. The bigger the dice, the longer the game. I loved how easy it was to build units and how easy it was to make stuff up. In the middle of the battle, Jarrus cast Summon Lesser Demons from the Ring of Spell Story. Rather than roll on the spell table, I suggested we just put a small demon unit on the field under his control. Took me maybe two minutes to build the unit, and it worked great, though Grayson rolled awful with them. It's super impressive how hackable the system is. With relative ease, you can see the numeric guts and amend it to suit your needs. The traits can easily be shifted and moved. You get a pretty big list of different ancestries, essentially race, but ancestry is a far better term to represent what we mean. This rule set works really well, quote-unquote, out of the box, but it's so easily hackable that you feel compelled to make some stuff up, honestly. Things that I would change next time. So the villagers won. They didn't just get away, they routed the ghouls pretty well. The people of the Rootlands, where this battle took place, are a very hardy bunch, well-trained in combat. So normally villagers might be levies, which is a nice way of saying cannon fodder. People on the field who just soak up damage and leave the regular armies fresh. But Rootlanders are all military trained, so even a village is able to muster some real units. The ghoul stats in Stronghold and Followers get a minus to attack rolls. They're based on the ghouls in standard D&D, and as I mentioned in prior podcasts, I'm using some advanced ghouls out of the Kobold Press book Tome of Beasts, which is awesome. I think the idea in the Strongholds and Followers rule set is that ghouls lack the discipline necessary to fight as a group, so while deadly at the individual level, they lack effectiveness in battle formation. I totally get it, but that was not these ghouls, and so the experience of fighting them directly versus fighting them in the battle rule set was almost a 180 degree turn. Bad on me for not adjusting that, but I just decided to use it straight out of the book. So the ghouls could not hit to save their life. Unlife. Undeath. You know what I mean. The other thing has to do with unit size versus multiple units. Rules as written is that if you have a unit and more of that type of units show up, they do not form a second unit. Rather, the size dice for the original unit goes up by one. Case in point, rather than two 1d6 size ghoul infantry units, I had one 1d8 size unit. I believe the reason for this is the abstraction of the battlefield. If you have two units of the exact same type, you have to explain what separates them, and that likely gets you into things like position on the field, which this system is really looking to avoid. Why I bring it up is that it seems to nerf the larger army's action economy. In the war game, as in the main game, the side that can attack more often has a big advantage. For the next battle, I'll make sure and break a large force like this into smaller ones and diversify their experience or equipment so that they're not the exact same unit and they're getting more attacks within the overall round. 
I'm not usually scatterbrained, but for some reason, keeping track of both the tactical PC-level fight and the larger battle in my head was a bit tough for me that night. I made a couple of errors on the villain's side, forgetting to let them attack more than once, and I made a bad error against one of the players and put them in a perilous spot when they should not have been. It's possible I was just tired and a bit unfamiliar with the system, but I think playing over roll 20, and therefore not having the cards out on the table with the dice on top of them, made it a bit harder to keep track of. There's not a great system in Roll20 for handling this kind of thing with cards that have information, plus the decrementable, is that a word, dice. So what I did, my solve, was to build this all out in Google Sheets and have multiple tabs, and everything everyone needed was right there. But that's a separate software package, so while everyone, their Dungeon Master, for example, is looking at Roll20, he was forgetting that there's this Google Sheet to remind him that he needs to make these ghouls attack. All of these comments are easily handled with some obvious tweaks within the system. It's perhaps what is most promising. It's, it's very transparent and easy to see how you can change things up to suit your needs. Overall, by the end of the session, it felt like a big battle had been fought and won. The abstraction of the rules did not lead to an abstracted experience in play. It was able to come to life in a very evocative way. I asked and received very positive feedback from the players. Yeah, there was a learning curve, but once we put it in action, we all had a pretty good time with it. There continues to be a big conflict brewing in this campaign. I expect there to be much larger scale battles as the faithful of Semyana push further into the rootlands. Lots of opportunity to use warfare rules again. In the aftermath of the town's unexpected victory, the original problem remains and is, if anything, worse. Daragul fever now infects more people than it did before, and Sativa is afflicted. What should be an Ewok-level celebration instead has the potential to be a morale-crushing defeat. After the townsfolk see the ghouls up close, it's unlikely that the bitten will not be put down. This situation does, however, represent an opportunity to properly integrate Sativa into the group. Following the death of Bruce's last character, I've received feedback that Sativa's introduction was a bit rushed and felt forced. I agree. At the time, I prioritized getting Bruce playing his new character fast over doing it well. As a result, Sativa is a bit of an unknown to the team. They don't know much about her or her backstory. Where I'm at now is that I think I can use this situation to kill two birds with one stone. I can make the victory less of a downer, and I can reintroduce Sativa in a way that better seats the character within the PC group. What I don't want to do is send the whole team on a side quest. For this campaign, side quests have had a bad habit of becoming more than I intended, and while I'm normally happy to follow events where they take us, I am keen for the group to get some true downtime in the city of Medier. As I work through this challenge in my mind, the framework is to use Sativa and her backstory to present an opportunity for healing the fever to do so in a way that does not send the party off on another quest and minimize it feeling like a deus ex machina. The idea I'm pressure testing at the moment is to introduce a druidic circle. I was always fascinated in the original AD&D books of my youth by level titles, especially for druid and monk, where there were a limited and fixed number of the class at any given level. Specifically, there is only ever one druid of 14th level or higher, known as the Great Druid. 
You get that title by defeating the great druid who came before you. Why it fascinated me is not the title per se. I actually think the great druid sounds like the great pumpkin, Charlie Brown. Anyways, but the implication of a tradition and that there's a story founded within that tradition, something that connects the player into the campaign world and makes things feel more three-dimensional and real. Sativa is not at 14th level, not even close. But this becomes an opportunity for her to engage with the druidic circle and negotiate with them to get involved to both help her and the townsfolk. Because Sativa has a checkered past, she's likely a provisional member of the druidic circle, one that they watch closely. And this might put strain on her standing. By calling for help, they'll want more of a commitment to the order from her, the degree of which will be a function of her social skill checks. So I'm not thinking of this as pass-fail. They'll help. But the question is, what will she have to give them? What will she have to commit to? I'll have to give some specific thought to that moving forward. If Bruce is game, this helps to flesh out the campaign world. And because there will be a price for their help, it softens the potential heavy-handedness of this DM intervention and gets us back on track for Medier and the main questline. This has been Anatomy of a Campaign. Please remember to develop an inappropriate obsession with the podcast by liking, hearting, thumbs-upping, up-thumbing, sharing, and twittering about it. I am at Anatomy Camp on Twitter, and the subreddit is r slash anatomy of a campaign. I ask you, what is best in life? To socially shame your enemies, see them delete their accounts, and to hear the lamentations of the Twitterverse. Thank you for listening. And I apologize anyone who's in Austria. I couldn't help myself.